Today on Ag News Daily. Well, we have five what we call expressions, and that's not my term. I think that's a term they use in the liquor business. I'm not a veteran of the liquor business. Again, two and a half years in a non-drinker prior to, so... Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Mike Pearson, joined by Ashton Carr. Ashton, we've got a fun Friday interview planned today, don't we? Absolutely. I'm super excited for our listeners to hear about Iowa Legendary Rye, but we will get to that in just a little bit. Yes, we certainly will, folks. But if you need a cocktail to get through the news, we totally understand. Absolutely. Things are crazy. So I wouldn't blame anyone for cracking a cold one right now. And you can now, Ashton. Is that correct? Yes. I turned 21 in April. Perfect. All right. Well, hopefully you haven't been drinking quite yet. Let's get through the news. All we'll, right. we'll, we'll have a little have a little something. But I tell you what, we've got news, follow up of a story that uh, you know we've kind of been following this whole week. And this is the bizarre request from China that their Im- exporters... Y- exporters into China, Chinese importers, uh, sign letters of guarantee that their cargoes of meats and soybeans will be free of coronavirus. We haven't yet had a response from the USDA here in this country. We also haven't had a formal response from the Canadian ag departments, but down in Brazil, they're, uh, they're basically, uh, they're Association representing grain traders. So this isn't the the state responses. The association of folks that would be exporting grain released a statement saying that they cannot and will not make promises to Corona that loads will be COVID free. Whether or not this is going to scale back Chinese purchases remains to be seen. There was a report out from Reuters earlier this morning that the past month saw China hit a two-year high in imports of Brazilian soybeans. So they've certainly been aggressive buyers down there on beans out of Brazil. Whether or not the Brazilians' lack of willingness to issue these statements causes things to change and perhaps have the Chinese pivot more to the U.S. remains to be seen because we don't know how the U.S. is going to respond to this claim as of yet. We'll continue to watch this story, but Ashen, it's certainly interesting. It certainly is. And, you know, I kind of don't blame them, I guess. I think it's kind of hard to manage COVID-19 and to see symptoms with people since People can be asymptomatic and, you know, I wouldn't want to promise something if it were to come out untrue or anything. So, you know, I really don't blame Brazil too much, you know. Right. And uh, in their comments, they say that, you know, there is absolutely no evidence that uh, this virus could survive on anything that has been shipped over from Brazil. I think we're going to see similar comments from the United States, though. We, we haven't as of yet. I need to state that again. But I think that's probably where they're going to come down. Just they're not willing to sign this thing because, A, it looks like this virus can't be transmitted that great of a distance on something like the hull of the soybean. And also, who knows what it could come in contact with on the journey over. You know, there's a large gap of basically potential vectors, you know, crewmen on the cargo ship, for instance, could possibly, you know, cough on a bean at the port and maybe, you know, give one bean coronavirus that that's the one they test you. Who knows? I just think the risk is too great for these companies or uh, industries to sign off on a letter like that. 
Yeah, I definitely agree. But I have a bit of news domestically. So the National Pecan Federation has petitioned the USDA to establish a research and promotion program to expand markets for pecans. Now, we have a bunch of pecan trees down where I'm from. I don't know about you, but I'm a big fan of pecans. My grandpa, he used to shell them for us and we would put them in the freezer. And so this made my heart a little bit happy to see that the National Pecan Federation is wanting more of a promotion program. Program to expand those markets. But as with similar organizations, it would be funded by an assessment from growers based on their production. And the National Pecan Federation has suggested an assessment of two cents per pound of in-shell and four cents per pound of shelled pecans. And so the proposal includes domestic and imported pecans. And I'm excited to see if this really comes to play. Right. Do we know when this would go into effect? I don't think so. I don't I don't see anything in the article that I have pulled up. Um I don't think that the USDA has released anything about it just yet. Um but we shall see in the future. All right. Well, you are on the pecan beat now as well, Ashton. All right, I'll just add that to my going list. Perfect. I've got an update from Germany. Um, Germany, uh, just like every other country around the world, has seen issues with COVID spreading at meatpacking plants. And there was an outbreak uh, about a month ago at a meat processing plant near Gutersloh. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it was fun. Um, that has uh, basically put the community back into lockdown. So there's been about 600,000 people who have gone back into lockdown because of this outbreak. Well, the German government appears to be using this outbreak as reason to push for a levy, basically an additional tax on livestock production. Um, they're coming at this from several angles. One is they're saying they need to clean up food processing. So they would use this additional tax to, uh, quote, improve the conditions of animals for slaughter. Really no idea what that means. That is a vague and scary term to hear coming out of the government. Um, but also their desire is to raise the cost of meat. The uh, ag minister came out and said that meat should not be a, quote, everyday junk food and that attempts are being made to lure consumers with dumping prices. Basically, she's worried that uh, meat processing facilities and retailers are charging below cost of production prices for meats and sausage, and that is enticing people to eat these goods far more than they would usually. So this would basically be a ban on selling meat products below the cost of production, and it would be enforced by local authorities. You know, you read about this stuff coming out of Germany, and of course, Europe tends to lead the world when it comes to animal welfare concerns. So I don't doubt that we will probably hear similar arguments being made by uh, environment or animal welfare watchdogs in this country in the future. I think this is probably a wave of something, and it sounds like it is going to pass in Germany. It sounds like this uh, legislation is making really good progress. The uh, the Ag Minister, Julia Kluckner, said that uh, we are closer than we have ever been in getting something like this passed. So it seems like it's got the force of German government behind it. And it might be something for our American compatriots to keep an eye on, especially as we have more conversations about the food supply chain, particularly with meat in this country. Interesting stuff there, Mike. And I have a little bit of a news also kind of coming from Europe. So the agrochemical company Syngenta is based in Switzerland, but they are coming to northern Illinois. So Syngenta announced on Friday that they plan to build a seed research and customer center in northern Illinois. 
in uh, DeKalb County, I believe. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Again, I'm from Texas, so I'm really not familiar with Illinois or anything up in the Midwest. But the DeKalb County side is meant to host large events to showcase corn and soybean technology and innovation. And I do have a date for this one. Construction is expected to start early next year and is scheduled to open in 2022. And I read that they chose this site specifically for its soil type and ease of accessibility. Yeah, DeKalb County, that is good corn growing ground. And of course, it's right off 88, which is, uh, you know, a main thoroughfare for a lot of folks, especially when you're traversing the Corn Belt. So it makes a lot of sense. It's a place to locate a research facility. Hmm, You might have to check out when they start breaking ground what's going on down there, Mike. I drive past it every week, so I will be sure to swing in there and maybe, you know, grab some interviews from time to time. Good idea. See what's happened since ChemChina purchased Syngenta. See if there have been any changes. We'll try to get the inside scoop for all of our listeners here on Ag News Daily. Well, you're on the Syngenta beat. All right. All right. I like that. The intern making assignments. I love it. We are turning the world topsy-turvy on this crazy Friday. Well, Mike, what other headlines are you following today? So I just have, excuse me, I just have one other headline that I am keeping an eye on, was unaware of this until this morning, but throughout this growing season, of course, the globe has been plagued by so many issues this year. It has certainly been a crazy year from, well, nearly every perspective. One of the stories that gained early traction and then was supplanted by coronavirus and then was supplanted again by the uh, the riots and, and everything that's been going on recently are the spread of locusts across Africa and East Asia. Uh, massive, massive uh, locust spreads, basically grasshoppers, moving across devastating crops in those parts of the country, of the world, rather. Well, there's another one. Uh, this time, a locust uh, swarm has invaded Argentina and Brazil. It's not huge. It's about a 15-square-mile I say that's not huge. It's a 15 square mile swarm of locusts that is devouring crops in uh, Argentina's northeast uh, sector. And they said so far it hasn't caused significant damage. But both governments, uh, those in Brazil and in Argentina, are keeping an eye on this. They say, and this boggled my mind, we don't know. Obviously, nobody can count a 15 square mile swarm of locusts. But they say they're estimating it's 40 million insects congregating and floating around, flying around and hopping around as grasshoppers do uh, with potential to spread. So the uh, the coordinator at Sensa, which is the Argentinian uh, research body, said, quote, we are following the movement of the plague and uh, they will keep an eye on it. And they are hoping that the arrival of cold weather from the south will basically not freeze these in place, you know, due to actual freezing temperatures, but the cold will inhibit a lot of their movement and uh, might nip this thing in the bud. Oh, my goodness. Just all this crazy stuff happening in 2020, I tell you. It's a crazy, crazy year. Ashton, do you have any other news stories you're keeping an eye on, or should we jump into the markets? I don't have anything else if you don't. Let's go ahead and jump into those markets. I don't. Folks, if you need to make yourselves a cocktail, particularly if you're a wheat grower, we completely understand. We've got a down day in the grain markets, down also in the livestock. Just a rough day altogether. Traders were watching the Hogs and Pigs report, which was released yesterday, showed the hog herd is 5% larger than it was a year ago and 3% larger than it was just last quarter. That is a big surprise to an industry that was anticipating year-over-year growth of 3.7%. We also saw a record number of pigs per litter saved, uh, 11.1 
excuse me, 11.01 pigs per litter saved in out of uh, farrowing this last quarter, second quarter of 2020. All of that contributed to the overall bearer sentiment. Plus, don't forget, listeners, we've got two big reports coming out on Tuesday from the USDA, the acreage, planted acreage report, and the quarterly grain stocks. We're also seeing traders adjust positions ahead of that data dump on Tuesday at 11 a.m. Central. All that being said, we're down today. July corn down a quarter cent at 317, even December down two and three quarters at 325 and a quarter. We have now significantly broken through our 10 cent trend channel from 330 to 340. So I'd expect some more downside in the corn market. Soybeans, very similar story. The July was down four and a quarter at 865, even November new crop down seven. Again, breaking through support levels, plumbing new depths, trading right now at 861 and a quarter. July wheat was the big loser on the day. Chicago July wheat down 12 and three quarter cents at 474, even. December new crop down 11 and a quarter at 484 even. Jumping over to livestock, the August live cattle contract dropped a nickel at 9602.50. The October down 17 and a half at 9947.50. Feeder cattle, August down 65 cents at 132.60. September down 72 and a half, finished the day at 133.77.50. And in hogs, actually pulled off the day's low. We were trading limit down in the August contract. We're able to climb above it before the close. The July contract down $1.65 at $45.27.50. The August down $3.20 at $48.12.5. Can't forget about our friends in the dairy market. The rally is back, at least in the deferred. The June class was up a penny, class three rather, up a penny at $20.93. The July up $0.59 at $21.53. Well, with all that bad news out of the way, folks, fix yourself a cocktail. Let's hear the story of Iowa Legendary Rock. Hey guys, in case you didn't know, when I'm not here hosting Ag News Daily, I'm helping out with the Iowa Farm Bureau's Spokesman Speaks podcast. If you're from Iowa, you're probably familiar with the Spokesman newspaper, which has the largest readership of any ag newspaper in the state of Iowa. The Spokesman Speaks podcast is an extension of that newspaper, reaching farmers and ag professionals on the go with the stories that matter most. In this week's episode, we have Iowa Secretary of Agriculture Mike Nag talking about state COVID-19 assistance for livestock farmers. We also have Chris Norton, a former college football player who experienced a paralyzing injury on the field and was once given a 3% chance of regaining movement below his neck. Well, Chris beat the odds to walk again, and his inspiring story has plenty of lessons that we could all use right now. You can find and subscribe to the Spokesman Speaks podcast in your favorite podcast app, or go to iowafarmbureau.com slash podcast. Today on the podcast, we have Heath Schneider, and I'm not even going to try to say all of your many different titles because we were just talking about this before we started recording for the podcast today. So Heath, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience and tell us a little bit about what you do. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. I appreciate you having uh, having me on too today. So my name is Heath Schneider, and I am the uh, bootlegger's grandson. That is my official title for a company known as Bad Bear Enterprises that sells two brands, one known as Iowa Legendary Rye and the second known as Sextro Rye. And it is a very cool story. The story of 
well, how this company has come to be after being dormant for quite some time, despite a, an early and inauspicious beginning, I guess I should say, because it was, uh, of course, clandestine back when this was started. Give us the history of Iowa Legendary Rye. Where does it all harken back to? Well, it harkens back to a little town called Templeton, Iowa, that's somewhat notorious in the Rye Spirits uh, history books. Uh, my grandmother, uh, during the Depression, was desperate to feed four children, and in that process housed a bootlegger that made a product known as Templeton Rye in Templeton in 1932. Uh, being she housed the bootlegger in her home six days a week. He went home for Sunday Mass. Uh, she got to know how to make rye in the uh, Templeton style and came up with a barn recipe of her own, a little more customized, a little more personal, using her knowledge as a bread baker and a gardener and just an overall um, entrepreneur during that time. She went to making rye spirits, and that is the recipe we use to this date. And so I've got just a, a quick follow-up question because you said something interesting. Templeton-style rye. Is there a unique flavor to the ryes that were developed in that particular part of western Iowa in the early 30s? Is I mean, is Templeton-style, is that a thing? It sure as heck should be because it is very distinctive. But um, there is no category per se. But I will tell you the defining characteristic, and I think this is hilarious, the defining characteristic is the recipe of water, rye, yeast, and most importantly, sugar. You cannot call a product whiskey if you use sugar. So we're one of the only products that qualifies as rye, but not whiskey, because whiskey takes either a, um, a, a chemical known as alpha amylase or it takes a barley. Uh, that's been malted. Uh, we believe that both of those particular processes imperfects the quality. So we stick to the original recipe. The funny part is Templeton in 1930 and in the 20s, for that matter, bought more sugar than most metropolitan cities. And that was <laughs> due in large part to the amount of rye that they were making. So we stand true to that recipe. We're the only uh, rye manufacturer that uses sugar in their mash bill because that's how grandma did it in 1932. And that's how we do it today. It's incredible stuff. And, you know, we, we could have been they were making rye or could have just been avid bakers making lots of cookies back then in the 20s and 30s. <laughs> we don't want to incriminate anybody. But uh, so uh, grandma started bootlegging, started making this product. Then, of course, prohibition went away. We legalized alcohol once again. The recipe went undiscovered for some time. Can you tell us how you ended up in the distilling business again two generations later? That's a great question. So um, my uh, attraction to this business was through, like many things in Iowa, the grapevine of communication. We had come to find a website, my uncle, specifically my uncle Phil, who was the son of my grandma, Lorene Sextro, who was the original recipe creator, uh, came across a company called Iowa Legendary Rye and mentioning my grandma, but spelling her name improperly. So we took 
you know, exception to that in that, you know, listen, if you're going to mention her, you probably mm-hmm. should spell her name right. And went into the distillery during a family reunion. The family hails, obviously, from Templeton, Iowa, Carroll County. I'm from Denniston, Iowa. So that's, you know, 30 miles from Carroll. And we went in there just for a novelty, you know, let's see what grandma used to make. Let's see if it's the recipe she left behind in her Mia Copa letter to us. And we went in and got to know Whiskey Rich, who happens to be a fifth generation bootlegger. And we thought, well, that's a heck of a story. We looked at the recipe. It was accurate to what grandma left behind. Uh, strangely, grandma left one of the key parts of the process out because she didn't want her children making whiskey. Um, so we got to talking to Rich. Uh, Rich got to talking to me. He thought it would be great to have a sextro descendant in the company. I personally was not interested at the time because I did not drink prior to joining this company. I didn't drink beer, didn't drink wine, and certainly did not drink liquor because of the ill effects. Uh, we got to a tasting uh, part of the process. Uh, Rich is good at that part of the process. We uh, had a little too much, and I made an exception being it was my grandma's recipe and was amazed at two things. Number one, the taste being unique versus any other spirit I'd ever had. And number two, the lack of ill effects versus everything else I'd ever drank. And that it was my romance with the company and how I got involved uh, two and a half years ago. Well, Heath, this is definitely an awesome story. And as a fresh 21-year-old, I just turned 21 uh, two or three months ago. So this is really interesting to hear. And so um, I did read on your website that you guys keep things local. All of your ingredients come from Carroll and Crawford counties. So what made you guys want to actually keep the business local? Well, it kind of harkens back to the fact that it all took place in Carroll County. So um, unlike any other um, rye manufacturer that I know of, we actually grow our grains in Manning, Iowa. Uh, We're in our third year of uh, organic certification. So we actually will be certified organic in a Manning, Iowa field. You know, my entire youth was spent in Carroll County and Crawford County. And we feel like it's important to stay local. You know, we do everything at that factory in Carroll. We grow our grain in Carroll County. We uh, get our bottles uh, in Missouri. It's the closest we can find bottles, being we haven't found an Iowa bottler. We get our barrels from just north of the Iowa border in Minnesota. And we just think it's fantastic to keep everything local And like it probably was in the 30s, there wasn't such a transportation system where one could go far out into other countries to, you know, gather their grains. And we feel like it's just part of our history to stay as local as possible. Now, Heath, sell us a little bit on the booze. You mentioned the lack of ill effects when you drank it. You mentioned the unique flavor. What type of blends is the word I'm thinking of? Maybe I guess what spirits do you guys offer? Well, we have five what we call expressions, and that's not my term. I think that's a term they use in the liquor business. I'm not a veteran of the liquor business. Again, two and a half years in a non-drinker prior to, so I'm sure I could be corrected by many uh, uh, people with decades of experience. But as it pertains to us, which I am deep on, we make a uh, non-barrel-aged product, which we call white label. 
We make a vodka, which is like most vodkas, cooked at a very high proof and watered down to 80, uh, 80%. We do a new barrel expression. We do a used barrel expression. And we do a double distilled double barrel expression. And all in the spirit of each one tickles another drinker's fancy. I don't think anyone likes all of my products, but usually find someone finds one of my products that they like a lot. Historically speaking, if I were buying from your grandma back in the 1930s, it probably would have been most similar to the white label product, right? That would have been kind of fresh out of the still, correct? Well, a little of both. I think it would have been white label and it would have been black label. We say that black label is the new barrel um, expression and white label is never barreled. And depending on the drinker and the situation, I think you'd have got a little of both. Gotcha. Okay. Before we let you go, Heath, bring us up to speed. Where can our listeners find Iowa Legendary Rise and the different expressions and where should they be looking for it? Well, one of our favorite vendors is Hy-Vee. They've been a great supporter of us. They've uh, th- That corporate culture is to support local businesses in the Midwest. So I want to take my hat off to them and thank them for their support. You can usually find our products in all the Hy-Vees, all the expressions. Maybe not the double barrel, uh, double distilled. It's a little higher end. Um, one can certainly go online if they want to go to sextros.com. That's S-E-X-T-R-O-S.com and order online in 44 states. And we are in many local liquor stores, local bars and restaurants. And if you don't see it, we'd really appreciate you asking for it. I can assure you one thing is like nothing else you've ever had. And it was uh, at one time the most famous rye on the planet. Keith, I have the website pulled up and I am going to put in my zip code after our interview and see if I can't get my hands on some of that vodka around town here in Lubbock, Texas. But I have one more question before we let you go. Are you guys on social media or anything so our listeners can keep up with the latest and greatest from Iowa Legendary Rye? We are under Iowa Legendary Rye in Facebook. Um, we're, we're building out our social on Instagram, but the easiest way to find us is Iowa Legendary Rye. We're the only brand I know of with the word Iowa in it. And we're very proud of our heritage in Iowa. So I think that's the best way to find us. And I thank you for trying it. I I would love some feedback from you. I think you will be pleasantly surprised by what you taste and how it feels. I'm hoping so. Well, thanks, Heath, for taking the time out of your day to come and talk to us about the rich heritage from Iowa Legendary Rye. Thank you, guys. Greatly appreciated. All right, folks. Well, there is the story. Be sure to check them out. It's great to give uh, small businesses an opportunity to flourish. And we know agriculture could use a stiff cocktail. Hopefully you're half in the bag by now and you need a good lap. So we've got a little bit from Tim, the dairy farmer. Tim here again. Minnesota is home of the largest ball of twine made by one man. They say it's a mystery how it was made. I know exactly how it was made. He was a farmer. He was baling hay with a good deal hay baler he bought from Bob's second-hand auction barn. And being a true farmer, he also had two pallets of old baler twine he found alongside the road in the ditch. He knew someday he would get to use it for something. Well, the day came. 
One pass around the field and two weeks of cutting the string off the old Baylor with a dull pocket knife. And the rest is history. Not only did he break a world record for the largest ball of twine, but every time he tries to be thrifty, his wife pulls a piece of string out of her purse. Here's a fun fact. California is actually home to the world's largest thermometer. And ironically, Washington, D.C. is home of the world's largest rectal thermometer. Hey, this is Tim the Dairy Farmer. To hear more about me, go to timthedairyfarmer.com. I hope you all are safe and keep milking it. Always good to hear from Tim the Dairy Farmer. I tell you what, Mike, it's been a pretty fun Friday here on the podcast. It certainly has, Ashton, and we'll be back next week with more fun. But if over the weekend listeners want to get caught up on what we've done in the past, visit the website, agnewsdaily.com. Catch up on our past episodes as well as the episodes of other folks, part of the Global Ag Network. Lots of funny and thoughtful stuff there for you to uh, investigate. Or visit our social media. Go to Ag News Daily on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. With that, Ashton, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.